This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. Okay, to that end, exploring a full-spectrum spirituality, I feel like in 2023 I am orienting the directorial direction, if I can say it like that. I'm trying to orient the, the podcast to really get into what is a full-spectrum spirituality, specifically um, what does uh, including the shadow aspect of our lives into what does that mean? What does it mean to include the shadow in a full spectrum spirituality? And one dimension of the shadow for many is addiction and the shame and blame and guilt and struggle with addiction. Um, as you'll hear in this episode, I don't get into it too much yet, but I'll be probably exploring it further. I have wrestled myself uh, for many years with alcohol dependency. Um, I recovered in my in my own self styled way with psilocybin. Um, but it's a it's a topic the topic of addiction, whether it's to a substance or to technology or to a behavior or to a just a bad habit pattern. It's a topic that I think is relevant to so many and very likely relevant to you. So I'm very happy to be joined today and to introduce my uh, podcast audience to a friend and colleague of mine from Switzerland. Uh, her name is Elisa Malnaverni. I always trip up a little bit on her, on her last name. But Elisa is a yoga teacher. She teaches yin yoga, but she, uh, she lives in Sw uh, Bern, Switzerland, which is where I met her. And um, she's written a wonderful book called Yoga for Recovering Addicts, Stories of Hope and Ways of Self-Healing. And as we discuss, uh, this is a very uh, complex in that it's a rich, nuanced, conversational meditation on how yoga can support individuals in their journey to recovery. And uh, one of the things I really like about the book is that she interviews many leading teachers, clinicians, um, and workers in the recovery space on their own journey, their own story, and the tools and practices that they've felt have been helpful and, and, and healing for them. So uh, it, that's one part of the book. The other part of the book or other parts of the book get into practices and um, some of the research and... and um, ways that yoga can really help uh, a recovering addict. And as she says in the book, and I just want to underline this point, she says early on in the book, in my book, we're all addicts. The only difference is some of us have addictions that society labels as strengths and advantages, such as workaholism, fitness addiction, or orthorexia. And some of us, some of us weren't as lucky and ended up with a coping mechanism that society demonizes. The stigma only causes more pain that begs to be alleviated. So again, um, as, as you'll hear in the conversation, I'll be having Elisa back on for uh, at least a few more sessions or a few more shows to open up the themes that she explores in this book. But um, for those episodes, I, for those episodes, I'd really welcome your questions and comments. So feel free to shoot me an email at josh at joshsummers.net. Uh, drop a comment in the in the comment section on the podcast on my website. Um, but we'd love to hear from you, and we'll be talking. I'll be talking with Elisa again soon. 
Um, but we really look forward to exploring this conversation with you. And on that note, I'm now going to introduce you to Elisa Malnaverni, Yoga for Recovering Addicts, Stories of Hope and Ways of Self-Healing. Today, I am with Elisa Malnaverni. How did I do on your last name, Elisa? I'd say there's room for improvement. In well, all honesty. <laughs> I am here to improve. Trust me. Will, but we have a few more rounds so we can practice yeah. and, and evolve. So, 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 give me a, so give me a little help and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you a proper introduction. Okay. So the Italian version is Malinverni. Malinverni. Yeah, that was good. Okay. And, and the better. Americanized version is Malinverni. Yeah, I don't like the Verney part. I like the Ver. I want to get to it. But let me. Ah, so anyway, you are Elisa Melon Verney. Yeah. And you, um, among other things, I have a middle name too. If you want to, (laughs) (laughs) we'll come to that. Um, You are a yoga teacher and uh, a mother, and probably a few other things. And you've written a new book whose title I actually need to ask you for because I was reading the digital copy of the book. Oh yeah. I'm so that, sorry. That we're going to be don't have the cover, <laughs> but it's the, the theme is addiction, yoga, meditation, and, and sort of a, a path to recovery in, in some yes. sense through, yes. with, with the tools of uh, yoga and meditation. It's called yoga for recovering addicts, stories of hope and ways of healing by Elisa. Self-healing. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So this is this is what we're going to be talking about. Um, and you know, first, I think we should give a sense of how we we know each other, uh, what our what our background is, um, and and just to get a sense of how you came to this this uh, this book project. Um, because I, I and I just want to say I read it. And I think it's a really great contribution to the to that topic of addiction. And I'm I'm oh, it's, it's something you. that I've been meaning to speak more about and talk more about on the podcast. So. Oh. So this is good timing. Um, oh, fantastic. First, it's been a while. It's been a minute since I've seen you. Yes. Right? Like it's probably been four years. I was it's... trying to do the math yesterday. I think it's been even five years. Like yeah. my second child was born when I last saw you. And I what? think I wasn't even pregnant. So it must have been uh, 2017. Actually. 2017. Yeah. yeah. So your second child wasn't born. No. No, No, she was born in 2018, early 2018. Yeah. And she wasn't around yet when you last visited. Yeah. I believe that was still a Daya Yoga at uh, my old studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and where, and you are based in Bern, Switzerland, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I know we met somewhere back in the, like, probably early teens, maybe in. Yeah, yeah. In In Zurich at Air Yoga. Yeah. Yeah. And and the, and the the commonality was yin yoga. You're yes, a, absolutely. You're, yeah, <laughs> you're a yin yoga teacher, and 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 I was teaching over there a little bit. Um, and so that, well, that I think they we're, we're. I think one of the things that I want to explore with you in the podcast is just I'm trying to bring in more friends of mine that are are also yin yoga practitioners, mm-hmm. and kind of have shop talk practitioner dialogue around how we're and teachers in terms of how we're thinking about navigating through some of these themes whether it's addictions or um, trauma or 
just yeah. wellness or whatever it is like what what is the mechanisms within yin yoga at, at, at times that that can be helpful and and what are we can what can we draw on from the broader yoga and you know meditation traditions um, <laughs> at large but um you know I guess one your background what this is something that I think is is interesting here in relationship to this book on addiction and recovery um because I was really struck in the beginning of the book how you have a section or chapter where you're saying I think entitled I am not an addict. And yes. and so I thought that topic of the, that that and that statement from you would be an interesting thing to explore up front, be, up front because you know, I think if some I would take to take someone aside off the street and say would you want to read a book on recovery and then they found out that the author wasn't themselves has not gone through the process of recovery or whatever they might say well what what is this person going to offer me what is mm-hmm. and so and I know you you grappled with this right I know this is something you grappled with yeah. so um so let's open that up like mm-hmm. how, how did you come to decide you wanted to focus on this what what were the kind of the conditions that that this project arose for you yeah I guess that's a three-part answer um the first part is I um in actually in 2017 um around the time that we last saw each other um I took an online seminar that was called yoga for writers I just just saw the ad on Facebook and I knew that was for me and the person teaching it David Holzer um he's a freelance writer himself and he is a recovering addict um he's 12 or 13 years sober now he's an alcoholic and and he was teaching that seminar and I was interested in it but then I read his bio and in in his bio it said um I'm recovering alcoholic and and yoga has been uh a huge part of of my recovery of my sobriety um and it has really helped me not so much to achieve sobriety, but mostly to maintain sobriety, mm. because I think that's the harder part. Because you can you can, you know, decide to do a dry January. You can skip alcohol, cigarettes for, let's say, like a couple of months, six months. But then life goes on <laughs> with its all its hardships, and then what do you do <laughs> if it throws you a curveball? when your your usual coping strategy is no longer available and and his story his personal story really inspired me and after that seminar that online seminar um i said to him i want to i want to keep working with you i want to keep writing and he said okay so like um come up with a, p- a few um ideas for for writing for projects and that was one that was something that even though I myself, I mean, I say I'm not an addict in in the conventional sense of the word. Like I'm not a, I've never been addicted to a hard drug or alcohol, mm-hmm. um, but I do have my addictions and I really do see addiction in a larger context. Maybe more about that later. Um, I was going to say, let's, I, plan, let's, let's plan a yeah. slide on that and come back to that for <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and that's what's, overall i think we all agree that yoga doesn't it doesn't change you and yet it does just by the fact that it brings so much awareness to our behavioral patterns to we're able to observe the way we think much more so than you know if we didn't have a practice of of mindfulness 
Uh, by the way, when I say yoga, I always include, like in my mind, I always include all the mindfulness practices like meditation, qigong, tai chi, and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then and then that's really what I wanted to investigate. How how does a mindfulness practice bring awareness to our coping mechanisms and behavioral patterns, and how can that mindfulness um, give us options? Because as soon as we we do recognize our our, our coping strategies, we can choose. We can choose, and that's a very Buddhist concept. We can choose. Um, do we react or do we wait for another breath or for another 24 hours or for another week and then decide? And that is huge. So that's what I wanted to investigate. And that came through, through my mentor, through David Holzer, um, who's also featured in the book as a recovering addict and who wrote the foreword. Mm-hmm. Shout out to David. Very grateful yeah, yeah. for all of his coaching. So that's the first part to to your question. And the second part is something I only realized in the process of writing when David asked me, so, okay, so now go ahead, dig deep. Why do you want to investigate this question? And then I realized that I was was born and raised in Bern, in the Swiss capital. And even though that's a very, very clean and orderly, I mean, you've been, you've visited. I I had to say, Um, you know, I have been... I think once or twice and uh, your description in the book captured it perfectly. I forget exactly how you said it, but it was like this, like, I mean, it is this little like magical town city that yeah. feels like they're like know, fairy tale, fairy out tale of a fairy much. tale. And you can swim in the river because it's so clean and yeah. Garbage collection comes every day. <laughs> so there's never, there's never any dirt on the ground. So yeah, basically that's what, where I was born and raised. And, what I think many people have forgotten is that from around 1986, 88 to 1992, um, there was a huge open drug scene in the city. And the junkies moved from park to park. Like they were always for a few months to a year. They were sort of tolerated in in public parks. Yeah, and yeah, that phrase "open drug scene" may not be uh, oh. familiar to, to many folks. So, yeah, describe that a bit more. Well, you mean you say it was tolerated? That, was it was, yeah, was, it was was there? It wasn't. The, it, was, it was tolerated legally by the legal. It was not tolerated legally, but there was just such a surge in numbers. Maybe not unlike the opiate epidemic that we're witnessing now, but it was, it was out in the open because. I mean, overall, Switzerland, there was just such a heroin epidemic. And, um, you know, to get their drugs, all these people were, all the the people who were using were migrating to the urban centers. So mm-hmm. Zurich and Bern, St. Gallen to some extent, and a little bit Basel, but Zurich and Bern had like these, and there was just, the authorities were overwhelmed. Like every once in a while, they try to, and that's what would happen. They would like, um, yeah, go to the parks and try to chase the junkies away. And then the scene would regroup in mm. a new park or around the main station. And yeah, the authorities were were really overwhelmed. And it was a critical, also a critical uh, moment, I think, in our political history, because there were the the lefties who started saying, okay, we need open injection sites. Uh, we need soup kitchens. We need to Clean really exchanges. Re- re- reformulate our drug policy. And and yeah, I think that's the reason why Switzerland has a fairly open-minded 
uh, drug policy nowadays. And yeah, so basically, um, yeah. So you you witnessed that growing up. I, and, I did, yeah. And and yeah. and the, some, the way you described it in the book, I it was like triggering my own memory of around that age, like in the eighties, nineties, when I was when I was a teenager or younger. And you know, in the in the, in the United States, there was an incredibly strong um, kind of ad campaign by from the drug, the, you know, the drug czar, drug war initiative, particularly under really in the eighties was under Reagan, and you know there was this fear fear that you know there was a very famous ad that they had where it was like a, a hot frying pan on a stove and they said, this is your brain. And then they cracked two eggs and they fried them and said, this is your brain on drugs. Oh, It put the fear of God in, in people like me. And just, so I was very removed from experimentation or being willing to experiment. Um, and it sounded like that, like what you observed yeah. and burned had also had a cooling effect on your potential, um, experimentation energy. <laughs> yeah, like absolutely. yeah, that's the way, I mean, that's what drug prevention was in Switzerland when I was growing up exactly the same. Like it's, and I say in the book, like we were very much taught that, okay, one slip and you're done, you try heroin, but even just, you know, nicotine or, or marijuana, you try it once and you're hooked and you're doomed and you're lost forever. Right. Um, which scientifically speaking is not entirely true. <laughs> not true at all actually um yeah and and um if you come back to your question why why addiction why the topic of addiction i think that also played a part because i have these um yeah these very like as a child you experience things more intensely anyway and i remember already having that which is something i still have as an adult when i see a drug actually any scene that feels like oh, you know, I should look away. But then there's that um, spontaneous voyeurism that we all have, that we still want to look. So you're supposed to look away. And my parents were, or my grandparents or whoever I was with, were very much like, no, 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 don't look. But I wanted, uh, as a child, I remember, or as a young teenager, I remember wanting to see and wanting to understand also because the junkies were clearly adults, but they were so different from what, the image of adulthood that I had and clearly they were suffering. And like, I, I remember feeling as a child, okay, there's bits of information missing here. And it was just clear that, yeah, they were, you know, they were often begging. Um, we were always hearing stories of, of attacks, of muggings. Um, yeah. So it was just something like we just said, like it's such uh Switzerland and Bern, especially, um, because it's the capital and uh, the whole government is here. It's such a safe place. And then there was such a, it was so dissonant, like this open rock scene in the middle of town. Like it was mm -hmm. like next to the government building. At some point they were in the park next to the government building. Um, yeah. So that's, that's certainly some, those are images that, um, yeah, sort of came up again uh, as I was writing. And that's another reason of why addiction, um, because I sort of wanted to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah. And then the third one is is probably um, that I think if uh, we think of the Buddhist concept of of grasping, uh, that's why there's the hand on the cover. 
um, or of attachment and aversion, addiction is a very extreme form of grasping or of attachment and aversion because we seek pleasant experiences and we want to run away from the unpleasant experiences. And then that's what we do. We reach for the pleasant experience since we try to push away the unpleasant experience or numb them, maybe in the case of addiction. And mm -hmm. I think addiction is such a clear representation of that fundamentally human um, mechanism to try and avoid pain. And, and it, it makes it so clear. And it's such, it's such an extreme example. And that's also why it's so, yeah, like I said, it's so clear. And that's mm -hmm. something that fascinated me. Um, yeah, to have this extreme expression of, of attachment and aversion or of grasping or of, you know, not wanting to accept that life is suffering and that the only way out is through. So that's another reason. Yeah, yeah. Addiction. And, I mean, <laughs> right. And there's a couple, couple of back, a couple of questions burnt coming up in my head. Um, one, I think one is around what your sense of a working definition of addiction is. Uh, and I know that mm -hmm. that question, that question will get answered differently depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. um, but the other, the other person I had on the, on the, on the podcast a couple of years ago, um, guy named Judd, Judd Brewer, who's done a lot of, I don't know if you've mm -hmm. come across his work, but he's at Brown now. And he's, he, in the States, he created a really uh, robust uh, smoking cessation protocol of mindfulness mm -hmm. um, and wrote a book called the craving Bri the craving mind and looks at the oh, kind of the, the the neuro dopamine feedback loop in the brain mm -hmm. that just establishes the the kind of the the, the behavioral habit of, of of reaching for things um and the sense I got from him was that, you know, his, his loose definition this is where I want to like hear, hear what you would, how you see it now, but his definition was, was an, an addiction is anything, any behavior we do repeatedly with adverse co consequences. We, we do the behavior again and again, in spite of the adverse consequences that come from them, mm -hmm. of that behavior. So, you know, anything really could, could fit that bill um, if there's adverse consequences arising. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I brought this up with him, but this is part two of my question or part two of this, this, this theme is that um, a lot of that whole dopamine neural feedback loop got wired and, and was selected for by natural selection several like a few hundred Millions. thousand years. Yeah. yeah at, least a, <laughs> at least a few hundred thousand years ago. Yeah. And, and um, in that environment, in that evolutionary environment, that was adaptation, adapt adaptively advantageous. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's in the modern environment with the the kinds of stimuli and access to certain kinds of stimuli in particular certain ways that that it's gonna, sort of overrides that neural circuitry to the point that it, it becomes viciously problematic, I think. Um, but the way the way he framed it, and you know, just that, are essentially our every every human mind, like addiction is not an individual mm -hmm. lack of willpower, lack of character, lack of strength, whatever. Addiction is a human experience because of our neurobiology and the environment we're in. Is is the way I took like 
what I got from that. Yes. And I'm curious what you think of that. And if you have a working definition and, and if so, what is that? Yeah. I mean, my working definition is very similar to what you said. Um, repeated use or behavioral habits um, in spite of adverse consequences. I would probably add to that that um, the addiction always provides temporary relief, but doesn't provide lasting joy. And and um, I didn't know the book you mentioned, the, what was it, Craving? The no, Craving, craving mind. mind. Yeah. yeah. But I recently read a book that's also quoted in my book, um, which I saw. It was very similar. It's called The Molecule of More. It's all about dopamine by, mm. I think, Lieberman and Long. And they make a very interesting point that, yes, dopamine dopamine is the molecule of more. It will always tell us that we need more. And the only antidote, <laughs> to use a Buddhist word, is actually teaching whatever our nervous system, our neurotransmitters, the mind, um, that there is a more um, sustainable way to happiness. And they make a very, like, I think it was a brilliant example, the, um, the actually, actually the opposition of infatuation versus companionship. Because usually a romance begin with some begins with some sort of honeymoon feelings and infatuation, and then some couples can take the leap and and find joy in in companionship, which is another neurotransmitter and hormone, which is more related to endorphins, to endocannabinoid, endocannabinoids, so um, oxytocins. Yeah. That's a mouthful, oxytocin, and so on. And it's just, it's two different systems. It's two different loops in the brain. And actually that's exactly what yoga does. That's what we do by trying to stay in the present, by, I don't know, watching the breath, uh, being in the body, feeling sensations in the body. We find pleasure without reaching for something, mm -hmm. basically. And yeah, and I mean, you've already said it, like our, our world, our capitalistic system our consumer society is not interested in 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 letting us feel that you know we're satiated we're satisfied that there is some kind of lasting pleasure so yeah i think from the outside we're constantly fed new temptations which only afford temporary relief so we need more 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 and that's totally totally feeds into our dopamine system um and i think to some extent that's fine. Like we need, we need our dopaminergic system or we would never get up in the morning. We would never want to, you know, study. We would never want to do well in our job. We wouldn't love what we do. We wouldn't, we would never finish a book. <laughs> right. So, so the dopaminergic system is very important. Um, the problem is that it can take over control. And, and also studies have shown that um, especially with severe addictions, it, it can be due to um, a, um, a differently or, yeah, differently developed dopaminergic system due to childhood trauma, due to the soothing or self-soothing, self-numbing mechanisms we adopted as a child. Yeah. But yeah, definitely my working, a working definition of addiction is like what you said, um, pursuing, continuing with a destructive behavior substance abuse uh despite adverse consequences it only provides temporary relief so we need you need it again and mm -hmm. 
usually you build, especially if it's a substance addiction, but actually also if it's a behavioral addiction, you build tolerance. Tolerance. Mm -hmm. So you will always need more. You will have to increase the doses. And another important feature to me is the loss of control. Like, because a lot of alcoholics start the night by saying, oh, I'll only have like one glass or I'll only have a bottle. And before the night is over, they've had four bottles or, and they've had a blackout and so on. So that's another thing, loss of control. And, um, and then more and more, uh, not actually, no, that's not true. <laughs> it can be that way from the beginning. It's also always tied to denial, like self-denial, but also uh, lying to your loved ones, lying to your family, lying to your boss, lying to, you know, your whole environment about, about the fact that, you know, there's something um, you need to feel okay to get through the day. And uh, yeah, and then there's the whole vicious circle of, of hiding, of lying, um, maybe having to do things to support the addiction, <clears throat> also financially. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. yeah. So right. that's my extended definition of addiction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, actually, I think this would be a good time just to drop in for the audience um, what I would describe as the intention I want to hold for our conversation and conversation. So I want to just mm -hmm. name now that um, our intention is to have at least a few more conversations around this. Um, mm -hmm. My my experience in interviewing people on books is that it, it, um, it an hour interview on one book can go by very fast. And I always feel like for myself, the, the real depth of the book never fully gets unpacked and, 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 um, is able to breathe fully. So, mm -hmm. um, I'm happy that I just want to announce to everyone that you've agreed and I'm happy to hear that you're, you're willing <laughs> to come back on and have a few, a round of conversations yeah. because I think, I think, um, there's a lot of, of themes that you raise in the book and I want to talk about the structure and sort of layout of the book in a second, but there's a lot of mm -hmm. themes you raise that, uh, that speak to you know the the power of of these practices, whether it's yoga or meditation, and and helping, as you say, maintain sobriety or uh, you know maintain recovery. Um, so I want to talk about the, the layout of the book, but the, the other <laughs> big topic because it, it I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Um, and I have my own disclosure around my own substance issues, you know, to come to at some point in these conversations. Um, but the, there is, I would say there's in, in modern spiritual scene, and, and you, can, you, you can push <laughs> well, that's back nicely put <laughs> in the modern, I love spir it. modern, the modern spiritual scene, in yeah. the modern spiritual scene, there's a kind of default Puritanism that, yeah. that if you, if you drink a little bit, if you smoke a little bit of this or that, or if you're using substance or you're doing ayahuasca, like you're not doing the pure, you're not on the straight and right, straight and narrow. You're not in the pure path and that you're compensating your, in a way, yada, yada, yada. Like you're, you're, you're somehow doing a, a like a, a corrupted practice, you know? And I know I had internalized that, 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 that thing. I had that, I internalized that view. But I've recently, um, well, not recently, but there was a scholar I just discovered like in, in an interview in the Sun magazine named Edward Slingerland, who I don't know a ton about, but have you come across his work at all? No. So he's he's reporting on something. I've read about this elsewhere too, but the, the um, let's see if I can summarize this in a nutshell, because this is, it's a little bit of a 
I'm not put, I'm not presenting this as pushback. I'm like, what do we make of this? Like, I want to talk about what do we make of this history, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, in terms of our evolution, you know, the agricultural revolution was roughly 10,000 years ago. And the, the standard story is that hunter gatherers started finding ways to plant crops that were, you know, uh, able to support their, their, their continuance. And in that organization of planting crops and, and growing up, they, the, the town started to form and then larger towns, and then you get to the cities. And so it's like agriculture was the birth of civilization in a way. And all technology mm-hmm. comes downstream from agricultural, the agricultural mm-hmm. revolution. Well, there's newer archeological findings, relatively speaking, that are completely upending that narrative. And I don't, if you heard of, I, I don't know how to pronounce this site, but Gobekli Tepe or Gobekli Tepe, Gobekli Tepe, it's in Turkey. <laughs> no. so this, this, this is fascinating. There's, it's this, it's at least 13,000 years old, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there is strong evidence of fermentation occurring in these large vats. Ooh. So these were hunter gatherers that were able to assemble these massive megalithic tombs. Like we're talking massive stones with tremendous uh, symbolism, art, 13 plus thousand years ago, 3,000 years before agriculture, they're fermenting, they're they're brewing beer, and (laughs) there's many people that believe that the beer was cross-contaminated with some form of a psychedelic, like an ergot from... um, I don't, I don't know exactly which one, but it, there's there's some people that believe that. So the idea is that these intoxication and consumption of intoxicants haven't been an aberration to human evolution or cultural evolution, but have actually been in some in some ways the driver of cultural evolution. Hmm. And then you apply that into the kind of the mystical, the ancient mystical literature. Mm-hmm. And um, he, you know, Slingerland talks about how we often hear about like dance and music and and drumming and meditation and chanting and all those. Those are all sorts of technologies for altering consciousness to bring deeper truth, deeper insight, deeper awareness, whatever it is. But he says a lot of those systems also involve some sort of intoxicant, whether it's the, the there's like the psychedelic wine that you see in ancient Greece and in the in the Temple of Eleusis, or um, which by the way some there's a theory that that psychedelic wine morphed into the early Eucharist of Christianity. There's a guy named Brian mm-hmm. Muraresco who has this whole brilliant thesis around this, um, and so and you know and I I don't know enough about this, but I I'm I am aware through through the grapevine that like yogis in india smoked a lot of cannabis you know and it, <laughs> or hash and ganja and um and so it just raises the question like what is our what is our what is the the the, the net relationship we have to these 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 mind altering substances is it there tends to be the stigma and a, and i'm not just like i'm not um minimizing the the devastating impact that really strong addictions have on people mm. but slingerland raises like the, the question a lot of we, it's hard to also assess the positive impact on culture on innovation on technology on religious view that mm. 
that these substances uh, confer and have historically conferred. So I don't expect you to really answer or even respond to what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to put things on the table evenly. That so it's it's not that it's it's something's all bad or all good. It's more you know, in the context that it's being used in and, 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 and what is the outcome of that use? Um, but I do think there's a kind of a strand of Puritanism in, at least in the modern spiritual scene to come full circle that sees some of these things as, um, you know, breaking the rules, breaking the, breaking mm-hmm. the precepts, if you will. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree. And, and now there's this newer, newer strand of people, you know, doing ayahuasca retreats or I don't know if there's other, other kinds of psychedelics, but there's always been. Like, there's psilocybin, this, people are doing psilocybin retreats and. Yeah, yeah. And there's always been this side, side strand or side lineage in the what do you call it? Modern spiritual scene? Modern spiritual scene? <laughs> For lack of a better phrase. <laughs> There's always been people uh, experimenting. And um, yeah, I um, personally, uh, I also feel that psychedelics, to me, psychedelics are a slightly different, Bracket, have a different effect. Yeah, or, or parachutes or whatever. Um to, well, they're to, strong chemical drugs like heroin, cocaine, yeah, like opiate drugs or yeah, or these so-called uppers. Um, I I don't know if you've got you've probably gotten that far, so we can we can spill the beans. Um, I, I do write in one of the chapters, I do write about my own ayahuasca experience. And it was, of course, amplified, but it was not so different from a heart opening experience I've had after my first Vipassana retreat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of thing I'd love to talk about. Like the, the, yes, the comparison between <laughs> like a journey like that, your first Vipassana retreat. I'd love to talk yeah. and get into that. Yeah. And so, and, and a lot of, not a lot of them, but actually one of my interviewees specifically, um, Michael Hastings, he also says about his, his first experience on drugs, first experiences on drugs were on LSD. And he says that he made some of the best pieces of art, of visual art he ever made um, during that phase. So I do believe that, and I, um, I think um, Miguel Villanueva, the, the um, psychotherapist that facilitates ayahuasca experience that I interviewed also says that, that um, he believes that the great uh, opportunity and power of psychedelics is that they they break down like the first or the first few layers of defense mechanisms of our psyche, and so we can be more more I don't know more vulnerable. Um, yeah, yeah no, I... more more open to sift through our specific traumas or whatever it is that we need to face and that that's very fascinating to me that's why i included that chapter and that experience although i do think my parents are going to be very shocked when they read that <laughs> well right because I, mean, I think it's important as you said I, it's not it's not black and white and i think yeah my book is not black and white that's why it's not very marketable um yeah. no no there, that it, was important I, to me <laughs> I, thank you for saying it in a black and white way you're right i, I was looking for that language there, there is a a, a nuanced uh, approach in your book that isn't black and white and um and i think one of the ways you achieve that and i just want to we, 
mention this now um, is just through the structure of the book, right? Because you're you're primarily interviewing people who either work as like in the field doing working doing recovery work, either as a psychotherapist or as a kind of a, a retreat facilitator, or a, a yoga teacher working or a mm-hmm. meditation teacher working with in the in the recovery themed yeah. themed context. Um, and, and I think then later on, again, I've, I've read most of the book, but skimmed through the digital copy. I'm looking, waiting for my paper copy to come. <laughs> but the, um, you give practices, you have a section on practices that mm-hmm. you put, put together. Um, but I, I, I do like the, the, the anthropologist to me, that's, this is what I'm trying to get to. The anthropologist in me liked your field work of interviewing a lot of different voices on this and, and sort of presenting it in, in a way it, it, as the reader, I feel like, okay, I'm not nothing. There's no formula being pr- pushed on me here. These are just, no. it's a, it's a variety of perspectives that I think all have something of interest to, of, of value to say. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything what someone says or, or, or go, uh, you know, completely dislike whatever someone else says, but there was a way that I could, I could pick and choose what I was like, what I was, was taking away. And, found that it, it 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 definitely enriched my perspective on 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 this topic um mm. so i just want to say that uh, thank you and, that's and a do, great compliment thank you yeah, no it, it's it's a it's a really nice read and the um i, I do remember was it miguel the the guy who the psychotherapist who's doing uh psychedelic ayahuasca. psychotherapy yeah yeah. Psychoth- yeah miguel miguel villanueva that's not his real name by the way <laughs> yeah but but i was glad you included that chapter because um and this is something we can unpack maybe uh now or later but the so my only experience with psychedelics has been with psilocybin that's the only one that i've tried um mm-hmm. but to what you just described I've described it similarly. It's that the experience of it is that uh, the defenses of, you know, we could call it the egoic defensives, the protective mechanisms that we, we kind of busy ourselves with those essentially become quiet or mm-hmm. so- soften. And it's like the experience moves in a kind of a, almost like a heat seeking way to the, the heat of unresolved pain or trauma that, those defense mechanisms are trying to uh, distract you from really focusing on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is the way, way I experienced it. And, and just in con- contacting those, those really painful things, those, those painful dynamic or aspects of self um, does precipitate a pretty profound healing process that starts to sound cliche when you try to put it into words, but it is mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely ineffably awesome it's it's just it's it's incredibly powerful mm-hmm. so when you said you if i can just interject jump, yeah um, go on because that that sounds a little bit dire um because i've also had like incredibly um like joyful and and laughing out loud moments on that ayahuasca experience because i remember at some point i was i was listening listening to my own thoughts and i was like 
oh, I have to write this down. And I was with a friend. So I was like, oh, I have to remember this to tell so-and-so tomorrow. And at the same time, I was laughing at the voice of my ego who was trying to like capture the moment and bottle it up. So I could, you know, I would have a good story to tell the next morning. So like, it's also like, it doesn't have to be all about trauma. And of course, yeah, there were moments like, I remember at some point, like I, I, yeah, I cried hot tears because I felt like, I could really feel my parents' pain at their separation 20 years ago. Um, but it was really like in and out of different emotional climates. And it, I, it's not just about your defense mechanisms drop and then you're just mm. exposed yeah. and standing naked in front of all your traumas. So it's a very, yeah, and I think it's it's similar with all those mushroom type experiences. It's, it's, um, it's powerful, but it's also gentle. Or what's your experience? Yeah, I my experience is varied. Um, And I just want to echo what you just said, too. What I was describing was the the I wouldn't even say bad aspects of the the journeys, but it's the the healing dynamics and the journeys often open to pain. But there, like you said, there's a ton of beauty and um, aesthetic richness and just, again, ineffable uh sublime numinous wonder and mm-hmm, awe mm-hmm. And, and and with everything um you had a question though that was the about just yeah and me? just to be clear for the listeners this is not this is not an ad like i'm totally not advocating that you do this every weekend i did this once hold on yeah 10 years a little over 10 years ago and it was really at a time in my life after a year or a couple of years of, of deep crisis. And it felt like the right time. It felt like I was coming out of that crisis and I was ready, you know, for more answers. And I haven't done it ever since. Like, it's mm-hmm. not, I, I, again, this is not something that we go shopping for and we just consume. It's, it's a spiritual experience. Yeah. But I wanted no. to know about your experience. Well, no, I, and, and I think you're, sp- <laughs> you're speaking to, you know, in general, the importance of set and setting. And mm-hmm. and showing up with um, you know in a in a within a container that's going to hold the experience and and you did it in a retreat type setting right mm-hmm. um, but it, I think it's again I'm not telling people to run out and do this too it's just but I think it the I would say for me I this is just my personal take that the the combination of having a meditation practice or in a meditation yoga practice, and then adding psychedelic experiences in occasionally. Um, for me, it, it it really was, it was huge in that, um, I, I don't know if you know this guy, and he's actually in Switzerland, Vanya Palmers, who's a Zen teacher, Zen priest. And he, I had him on the podcast too. He, he, um, he had been part of a, a a meditation study where they they had people on a retreat. The University of Zurich did the study, and they had people on a, a silent retreat for I don't know five to seven days, and then halfway in the retreat, in the in the middle of the retreat, half the participants got some <clears throat> some significant dose of psilocybin, others got a got a placebo, and they kind of tracked the the changes over time. Um, but uh, you know what I told him was meditate let's say just broadly speaking meditating fairly seriously for about 20 years i I, that felt 
like it brought me in contact with a lot of things internally, like a lot of things in the subconscious. Mm -hmm. But the psychedelic experience was like turning the light on in the room. So it was like the the meditation practice got me in the room, but I was like feeling around in the dark almost, and I and I could feel things. And I knew, and I, but I, I didn't, I couldn't see the form of it. I couldn't see the connections. Mm-hmm. And when the light came on from a psychedelic, and I'm and I'm obviously simplifying it tremendously, <laughs> but it, it it just lit everything up like a string of lights. I was like. Oh, okay. And, 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 um, and I haven't done it in a little while, but it, it, it does seem to have that kind of, uh, uh, an arc of, of a pattern in that, um, it, it, something from my past, something from my history, something from our collective history comes to mind that, you know, that often has some degree of, unresolution to it unresolved pain unresolved grief and um and it, and then there's a in touching it there's a transformation of that energy or mm-hmm. insights enough that that lead, start to lead to the development of a transformation i don't think these mm-hmm. things are like light switches that flip despite my early use of that analogy um i don't think it's a, it's, a, it's like an an immediate transition although the research is showing that people particularly you know there's a lot of success with various kinds of addiction and people using psychedelic psychotherapy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like having enormous success and, and and what I didn't know either, and this was in Michael Pollan's book, but like one of the founders of AA sobered up himself with, with LSD. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stories like that. Right. And, (laughs) and and the other thing I want to say was just, you mentioned LSD, uh, which I have not tried, but, um, Years back, I did a very informal interview with Joseph Goldstein for a college mm-hmm. magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, he had said something to me about his first kind of awakening insight was in Thailand, where he was just sitting around with some Peace Corps volunteers that he was hanging out with and working with. And was someone who was reading from the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. And he heard a passage out of that book. And he said his mind just released you know his mind opened up there was just this deep deep profound spontaneous experience and i said well what was that like and he said well have you ever done acid <laughs> <laughs> and i said no no he said well you know and you know he, he 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 tried to say in his own way that the sense of he said normally there's a sense of experience funneling towards a me there's a, like there's a V in in our perceptual field that everything's funneling yeah. towards a sense of me, yeah. and this was like there was awareness and experience, but there was no funnel to a centralized me any longer. Yeah. And um, I just thought that was interesting. That's a beautiful um, metaphor. Yeah. But and I'll just say this too, just as a planner of a flag. Um, one of my own mentors uh, was a psychotherapist and a, a Buddhist teacher who was on the sort of the ground floor of bringing Vipassana practice from India back to the, to the United States with people like Joseph Goldstein. And I asked him once, I said, what percentage of first generation Western Dharma teachers came to the Dharma through the doorway of psychedelics? And his answer was a hundred percent. I thought you were going to say 50. (laughs) No, no. It was like, I mean, it came down to every single one. 
um, that of people that he knew. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so again, it, it just comes back to the Slingerland thing. It's like, there's clearly there's problems with, and, and I, and I don't want to like, you were careful to say psychedelics are really in a different category. They're non-addictive. They're anti-addictive um, than the, the more, you know, the kinds of substances that, it, that generate that, really strong grasping mechanism that you spoke to mm-hmm. um, but there it does raise the question about what's the what's a healthy relationship to any of these things and um and how do they fit in with a path of awakening mm-hmm. in, in a way so um i know we want to we want to talk about at some point want to get into talking about how the how yoga meditation practice can can support addicts in recovery mm-hmm. um and i think a, a beautiful theme this is part of the nuance that you bring up in the book but um how a practice could also i forget the exact language but it's it's like does the does a spiritual practice become a proxy addiction <laughs> you know yeah I mean, a substitute for a, a, surrog- a surrogate addiction um mm-hmm. and 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 does it lead to a kind of spiritual bypassing, which is you know, hello, I'm, my name is Josh, and I'm a spiritual by I know spiritual bypassing well, um, and so I just think it would be good to get to get into those those themes. Mm-hmm. What is how long has the book been out now? Uh, a little over a month. A little over a month. So and, six weeks. So you're just in in kind of initial promotional mode and i was curious like yeah you've done a few you've done some podcasts already right yeah i had a um, very very um fun interview with jay brown which mm-hmm. will be out monday december 12th oh great <laughs> and I, I, I that's what i was going to ask is is what if that's the only interview you've done so far maybe you don't have enough of a sense but i'm curious like what is what are the the what what kind of responses have you gotten from people like positive negative like people enjoying uh, it yeah and it was so far but so far it's like my immediate family and friends yeah <laughs> no yeah and the people i've interviewed now so far the response has been hugely positive um yeah like i haven't gotten any harsh criticism so far which um i mean it sounds harsh towards myself if i say i was surprised but i I, we haven't said this yet, but it's taken me four years to write the book, one year to publish it. Um, so, yeah, and except for for my mentor, David, I didn't have much feedback. And then, yeah, when the woman who did the proofreading gave me feedback, that was that. But I didn't have any sense. Like, I was very much in that vacuum of, like, I've been writing, writing, writing. And my mentor is telling me, like, I've really grown, blah, blah, blah. But I really, I didn't have any sense and um oh and of course i've you know i approached uh, publishers and book agents and um and especially like the book agents um from them i got the response that it was too nuanced um not mainstream enough and also that i didn't have a big enough following on social media <laughs> um, well, well there's that so, right you there's that like you I, what you're describing is the the uh I, I don't know what to, the modern publishing scene looks. Yeah. <laughs> the, the modern publishing. I have to say the um, mostly also like I've noticed like uh, German speaking countries, um, the book business isn't as 
yeah, harsh yet. So yeah, so I was, I guess it was very, it was a humbling experience, uh, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, to be in contact with with publishers and book agents. So I guess um, my hopes weren't that high. So it's a really lovely surprise now that people appreciate the book. And yeah, but actually those are the people that, that I wanted to reach. I mean, of course, addicts are like the primary audience. Recovering addicts are, are the primary audience. But yeah. No, it's lovely that the people that I respect and look up to, like yourself, um, yeah, find it a worthwhile read. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. Um, and I, I, I just want to empathize that I can imagine what you said about how the the, the kind of the publishing world doesn't want to want such a nuanced book, and that you didn't fill in what they do want. But I can imagine that they kind of want they want you to have at least a few initials at the end of your name. <laughs> if PHPs, H's and D's are in those initials, mm. all the better. Um, and all, and also that, uh, you know, more of a formula, like here's, yeah, like, the, here's, the, here's, the, here's our model. Here's the model yeah. of what addiction is. And here's, here's the, the pragmatic three-step program that anybody can do once they have a yoga mat and a meditation cushion and a timer or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, even, even for me, like when there was another interview at my book launch party, I have to say, and even for me, when I like, yeah, when people ask me questions about the book, like I started like, okay, so it's about mindfulness practices, um, helping to achieve and maintain recovery, but these mindfulness practices can also become the new addiction. So it's like, even for me, like explaining that there's no one main message, um, off the book because to me it is it is controversial like i said it's not black and white it's not simple mm -hmm. um but that's that's not just that's just not the way i think like i don't like to me ever since you know i started practicing yoga or meditation i never liked the dogmatic teachers <laughs> that mm -hmm. was never yeah that was never my scene and i could never write that kind of book and yeah, mm -hmm. there are no PhDs in my after my name, <laughs> right? But but I mean, and not that that is often what one needs to get a a book contract or whatever. Um, but there's a, I think what you're, you know, the again the anthropologist in me appreciates about what you've done is there needs to be. And this is this is the part that I kind of I don't we won't get into it today, of course, but like this is what I want to mm -hmm. kind of set the intention for is that um because let's imagine for a second that there is a there's a model of addiction and then there's going to be a a formula of practice. You know, you need to regulate your nervous system and you know, so you have to hum for five minutes, then you have to do long exhales for 10 minutes, and then you have to do 10 sun salutations on the full moon, whatever it is. <laughs> so I guess you get you get you get the formula. Mm -hmm. And and I think where am I going? I, I feel like it's it's the rigidity of it's the rigid approach to practice that in a way only changes the drug and i'm yes. using that that's a, i'm quoting that line um you'll have to look this up i'll put this in the show notes for for folks but there's an integral rocker from boulder named stuart davis i don't know if you've ever heard of him he was mm. he was close <laughs> into the into the integral ken wilber scene for a while and i think he still is mm -hmm. but 
he had a he had a song early on called Only Changing Drugs. And it was about, you know, mm. someone who's like was an alcoholic and then they they got into, they got sober with 12 steps, but they were really just changing drugs. Like the the mm-hmm. kind of energy of control was just tra- tra- changing form. Yeah. And I do think, and this is this is the where I'm going, is that rigid approaches to practice, whether it's yoga or meditation, inevitably uh well, I shouldn't say inevitably for everybody, but they did for me, whether it was Iyengar yoga or really strict forms of Vipassana, um, were creating practices that I could say were actually causing me harm, <clears throat> but I was sticking with them because I was kind of blinded within the rules of the systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only when I broke out that I started to you know, get more experimenta- get more experimental and creative and find a way of practice in the line the way we're taught you and I have been taught to practice yin yoga, mm-hmm. but to, to really figure out how the intentions of a practice can be honored without, you know, the, the, um, the negative potential in uh, injurious side effects, which are there yeah. for any, any of these things. And I think, you know, there's, there's also phases within recovery and, you know, from what I've heard and seen, in interviews. Um, I do think there's a time and place for those more rigid kind of practices. I do think that especially at the beginning of of sobriety or recovery, um, it can be helpful to have that kind of very rigid corset, that kind of scaffolding um, with a lot of rules because, um, yeah, severe addiction is usually the, the undoing of all kind of structure, like um, like your day just revolves around getting enough of the substance in, into your system. And there's no, there's no showing up for work. There's no self-care. There's no, you know, showing up in time for family meals. So it does help to have a somewhat of a rigid structure in the beginning. But like, I think you're trying to say, like, then there needs to be a, a, a moment after, I don't know, a first phase um, where, yeah, you start you start to be to differentiate a little bit more to become a little bit more subtle because I think that's kind of also the proof of of true recovery. Like, can you be connected with yourself, your inner voice? Can you identify your needs and wants, and can you respond? Because otherwise, it's just like you said, it's just a it's just another addiction. It's just a new. Something that you need. I need that rigid practice. Like I need the endorphin high after my two hours Ashtanga primary series, or I need um, the high after my Kundalini Kriyas. Um, yeah, then we haven't. Like I mean, we've we stopped injecting or taking the substance, but we're still there's still something that we need to feel okay. Yeah, I mean, and I think in, in what you could just summarize, I think you, what you're saying is like, you could still, you could use a practice to continue the process of running. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're, if you're running from something with a substance or you're running from something with, um, yeah. with, with a practice, you're, you're still trying to get away from and not, and not face integrate or, or resolve something within what, within yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, But I also have to say that for some people, this is as good as it gets. Like there are some cases of, yeah, and I can't really say what it is that helps some people truly recover and 
um, be able to be present with whatever is also with their pain. And some people just continue, like you say, to avoid or run away and need something, whether it's social media or fitness addiction or um, becoming a workaholic. Um, I can't I can't really say what it is that makes some people truly recover and some people just become what Alcoholics Anonymous calls dry alcoholics, people that no longer drink, but they aren't truly sober. But mm-hmm. and that by that they mean that there's this uh ability to be present with all of your emotions. See, this is uh, there are all these questions are firing off, and I know they're gonna stretch us way beyond our time right now. Um <laughs> plant yeah, flags. It, you know, it's because the process of recovery is something I don't know much about. I haven't been through a 12-step program. Um, I don't haven't attended meetings or groups or worked directly with a professional on on it like in that way. Um, you know, I can say I, I for years I did have an alcohol dependency I, myself. Um, and psilocybin was hands down the thing that for me shifted that pattern for the better. And I rarely have alcohol anymore. Maybe occasionally have a beer or something, but it's not, I don't, I don't really tolerate it. I don't, and then I don't use it. Um, but that put, this is, puts me in a nuance zone. Like I know some people could look at my previous behavior and my patterns say, Oh, you are an addict. You are an addict. You're an addict. You're just, you and you're not calling yourself that. And I are and you're in denial. And I, and I, I, I think this is, I wrestle with that. I could see where their perspective is and I could say, oh yeah, I could see how you say that. Um, but then there tends to be, if you, if, if the label gets affixed, then a lot of the treatment protocols are that I've seen really say it has to be, you have to go through these particular steps, whether it's 12, 12, uh, 12 step or some other program. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, well, I know that the, the the research isn't very positive on the outcomes of like a 12-step program. Um, I know it does work for many, but it also doesn't work for many. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think the kind of nuance that you're exploring in your book is looking at th- threads of different approaches that um, I would hope would 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 um, increase efficacy efficacy of recovery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's no there's no one size fits all. And um, in one of my interviews, uh, again, Michael Hastings actually does say that there's some things that he loves about Alcoholics Anonymous or twelve steps programs in general, and then there are other things that they're not very good at addressing like um the whole question of, of early trauma um early coping mechanisms that may have led to the substance abuse or to the reliance on the substance again to cope um mm-hmm. yeah and and what the other thing that you were pointing to is uh, is all is also a very interesting topic to me like wh- wh- what is addiction where does it begin how do we like, like i still drink alcohol <laughs> I'm not sober curious and I have alcohol on most weekend nights and, and I look forward to it. It was a long day tonight. I came home. I was looking forward to sharing a beer with my husband and that's a ritual that we often do. And when we don't do it, I miss it. But does that make me an alcoholic? If it's, but it's still like, 
it's only on the weekends, but on the weekends it's like, ah, so yeah. And, and, um, yeah, of course, then there's all this def definition framework. And of course, if you have to have it every day and if the dose increases and then there's clearly addiction. But to me, it's very like I, I think I'm addicted to social media. I'm addicted to my screens. Um, I was addicted to coffee. I've been detoxing since March. Um, I am a workaholic uh, and so on and so on. And to me, it's. Yeah, I guess the the question it comes down to is how much do you need it like can you how long can you go without without going crazy um but or to the extent yeah. that it's causing destruction i mean i mean yeah if you take the model repeated behavior in spite mm -hmm. of adverse consequences mm -hmm. a whole lot of things look addictive and i'm not I'm just speaking at the individual level like at the collective you mentioned capitalism like mm -hmm. capitalism is an economic system that is predicated on a social addiction Mm -hmm. to profit yeah yeah and, and also what is an adverse consequence like if i'm climate. if i'm glued to my screen my children are trying to talk to me but i'm glued to my screen because i have to make i have want to shoot out another instagram post and i'm not present with them that's an adverse consequence but most people would say oh, but that's fine you're still a good mother don't worry but to sure. me that is in the long run it's an adverse consequence um so where does that begin like, is it only is it only health wise, physical, mental health wise? No, the the technical the technical digital addiction, and I I'm with you. I have um, phone addiction, just checking email and messages and things. And um, I since I moved to Maine, I like so I, I I had a huge life transition moving from Boston to Maine, and I live kind of in a rural state of isolation now with my partner Terry, and <laughs> you know. Even in these these ideal circumstances, I'm still finding myself like the, the habit of checking my phone, and um, it's it's it, it's a very pernicious thing. And to your point that you just raised, it's like it's it's getting normalized to such a degree that we're we're not even aware. But you and I will remember. But we're but younger generations aren't going to be aware of the co like the cognitive capacities that are literally being destroyed like ecosystems. I have a friend, um, Howard Axelrod, who wrote a wonderful book called The Stars in Our Pockets, but he's talking about, you know, att attentional collapse, like we have environmental collapse or, or you know, certain capacities of the mind are under severe attack. And a lot of us aren't even aware of it, mm -hmm. but that that's occurring. And, and so, right, you know, checking your phone, looking at your phone while you're not fully present to your kid, that's an adverse consequence. And some people might not even be, that might you know, not even register for some people. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, looking at intoxicants, looking at digital stuff, looking at various forms of addiction would be something we want to come back to. Um, yes. I guess a closing question for you now, and then, and then we can, we can, we can bracket this, but a closing question <laughs> for you might be, <clears throat> Who would you want, who, like, I, I, I always, whenever I've written stuff and like, who's your ideal audience, but who would you want to read this book? And what would you hope that they, they would take away from it? Hmm. Um, yes, primarily, uh, definitely recovering addicts, but I would also say petition <laughs> that there needs to be a willingness or a readiness to 
dig deep to, as we say in yoga and meditation, to really sit with it, to be willing to experience your emotions, experience also the dark nights of the soul. Um, so yeah, that would be my 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 primary audience. My hope that the book primarily finds those people that are um, have already achieved a certain level of abstinence and um, are willing to stop avoiding, stop running um, from the pain that caused the addiction or that drove them deeper into addiction and yeah, start facing it. Mm. I don't know if the book could even reach somebody that is not at that point. I guess they probably wouldn't even pick up the book. And my other hope is that people working with addicts, um, whether in a therapeutic modality or um, support group setting or whatever, um, could find it useful. And then I've been told, like even my husband said, oh, but the book's really interesting. Even if you're not into yoga, <laughs> I hope that it could be for, yeah, because like we've we've touched upon a few times during this conversation, I do think that we are all addicts in some way. Like I know very few people who don't have some kind of coping mechanism, whether it's social media, eating disorders, another big one. Um, well, I was happy to see you actually used the word orthorexia. Yes. In the, in the <clears throat> and I, I, you know, also I, I was an orthorexic for a while. Um, ah, yeah. I remember the stories from yeah. your raw food, raw food days. Raw right? food, I had to purify through raw food. Um, <laughs> and. Yeah. So I do hope that the, the book could reach, also reach those people who don't primarily identify as addicts, but are in some kind of transformational process of, um, yeah, I'm just wanting to be more honest with themselves. Quite yeah, 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 yeah. How they cope. Yeah, and I like I like that too. I mean, it comes back to what I was trying to say earlier about the, the to be a human is to grasp. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and it, it it that is part of the human condition. It's not a um, it's and not it's okay. It's, like yeah. Josh Corda says in his chapter in his interview, if you're not a renunciate. That's that's okay. That's life. But it's a whole different thing if we are aware of that mechanism and we can decide, okay, well, I just binge on Netflix tonight. That's my way to relax. Um, tomorrow I'll feel yucky because of this, so I won't do it again for a week and then maybe I'll do it again. But that's different. That's the power of choice. That's not being enslaved by your addiction or coping mechanisms. Yeah, my mind just went out for a second meaning zoomed way <laughs> zoomed way out and it's like well what we call it what we like this this really gets into the how we label it but like the 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 behavior like using the example netflix might seem like oh that's that's an innocuous behavior blah 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 and maybe you feel a little bit let's say you feel like a little bit lethar lethargic the next day because you had stayed up for four episodes that, that night um so at that at that level, we're talking about the impact on the individual, mm -hmm. but repeated behavior in spite of adverse consequences could also spill into the collective. And so if you, you know, I'm thinking if you get a populace of people numbing out to binging their favorite television series, which I will do from time to time, you mm -hmm. know, also detracts from someone's per per ability to per attend to 
the environment, political issues, so whatever societal stuff. Um, so the collective may struggle through through something that seems like an innocuous thing at a level of individual freedom or individual behavior, mm-hmm. but in terms of a broader pr- perspective, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's just it sort does. of. I think it's. I think what I'm excited to talk to you further about is like a, the an integral perspective on addiction. Like, what's the getting into more the the internal mechanisms, getting into the practices and the experiences that come up that, that, that can be worked with, and then and then the more um, how those can be established. Uh, what I'm going to try to get at is like how you design one's your environment can really go a long way to channel one's energy so that there's not so much willpower or like resistance required, but just, it, it just gets rechanneled. The, the energy that was grasping mm-hmm. gets rechanneled. Um, cause I, there's a phrase that always comes to my mind, like what seems like a person problem is often a, a system problem. Yes. And, and I think the big thing for me is that the, the stigma of addicts being somehow personally responsible, like bad choices, bad character, bad, whatever it is, mm-hmm. j- j- just doesn't hold up. And, yeah. but it is, but it is still pervasive. Yes. Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah. One of the main topics of the, the two appendixes, that's, that's what we've um, made addiction into that. It's like a, a character flaw or people who lack willpower when it's very much like, yeah, I think I quote Bruce Alexander, who's um, an addiction specialist. I forget if he's a psychiatrist or I'm not sure uh, from Brandon Fraser university. And he says, we expect people to be functional. I'm paraphrasing. That's not exactly the way he put it. We expect people to be functional in a broken system. Um, and we blame the addiction very much on the individual when, um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a problem or some of the roots of addiction are definitely lie definitely lie in the collective. Yeah. 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 And, and not even just the collective of, yeah, it, the, the, this, 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 mm-hmm. the system that the collective has created too. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and part of that so we'll have we'll come back we're going to come back we're, we're yes. recording this at the end of 2022 in 2023 mm-hmm. when the new podcast season starts we're going to start to release these um i look forward to seeing you again me too um, it's very it's a late great way you. of catching up it is a great years. way to catch very up extensive. I know. We'll, get, we'll get into more personal stuff next time all right <laughs> um, tell me about your daughter and son and um, but I know it's late where you are in Bern and I, I hope yeah, you are yeah. able to sleep well and have a good night. And, uh, if I don't see or speak to you before the end of the year, have a great new year, but I will oh, look yeah, forward to see you in, in 2023 and yeah. uh, continue this conversation. Fantastic. And, and I think you, you said you're sending me a copy of the book, right? Yeah, it's on the way. Yeah. Great. So I've already sent it through Amazon, but That's it might take a while. Sometimes it takes like two or three weeks. That's no problem. I, um, I just so much prefer reading real books to digital yeah, things now at this point. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with attention. Like I, I, um, a, a, a high school, a guy who was behind me in high school, I, I read an interview with him recently and he said, when he's reading, he can't have his phone in sight. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> you know, he cannot yeah. have his phone in sight. And yeah. that's a, that's a principle I've tried to start to apply myself and, yeah. and reading, reading on a book, it really helps that. Yeah. 
reading and also writing. I also put my phone. Yeah. The next oh, or absolutely. Even, it can even be behind my computer so I don't see it, but it cannot be yep. in my line of sight. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, Very distracting. Well, I really th- want to thank you for your book. I want. I know. I Aww. mean, it takes us so much energy to put something like this together, and I can only imagine the hours of toil and and, and dedication. So, congratulations on your book. That's a really Aww, big thing. Thank you. And thank um, you so I hope much. It, I hope it helps many people. And um, I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so All much. Right. Thank you for having me on. It's like. Always so good to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Hang <laughs> tight. Time D- don't don't hang up. Just we'll we'll say we'll say goodbye for the podcast. Bye podcast okay. group. <laughs> Bye podcast. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Elisa, and I really encourage you to check out her book Yoga for Recovering Addicts. There's a link for you in the show notes, and. Again, as I mentioned uh, in the intro, I will be uh, taping again with Elisa soon um, to explore this topic more deeply, and we welcome your questions. So send any comments or questions to me at josh at joshsummers.net or leave a comment on uh, my website under the podcast on the podcast page. But we look forward to hearing from you, and I hope this conversation does stimulate and deepen and enrich your practice. And again, I just want to say thank you for your attention here. Keep practicing, stay safe, stay strong, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.